I'm super pumped about this series that we're doing called uh, Markers. Markers, the well-worn path toward Christ, the well-worn path toward a life in Christ. And what, what this is about is, of course, is, and if you didn't, last uh, week was the introduction to this series, and we're going to go for the next seven weeks. But if you missed it, I would really encourage you to go and find uh, um, that sermon online on, through our app or on the website and, uh, and watch it or listen to it so that you can get caught up. But what markers are, markers are about, um, they're, they're, they're the, the directional pieces that are on the path so that we know that we're doing okay following Jesus. Because it's a big question, how is it that I'm going to follow Christ? How is it that I, that I know what to do as God's person in this time and in this circumstances? How do I know what to do in this era of my life and with these circumstances that are, I'm facing? And, uh, and markers are the things that help us. Here's the definition I put down for you. These markers help us know that we are on the well-worn path. We're on the path that people have gone before us. They're on the ancient path. These are where people that have sought God have gone before us. These are markers that help us know we're on the well-worn path toward becoming fully devoted, lifelong followers of Jesus. These are markers that, that help us know we're on the path. So what's happening is we're aiming at them, and if we aim at them, we know that we're going the right direction. If these things that we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks are are in our lives, and we, we aim toward those things, then we know that we're going the right way. Because that's the question. We stand at the crossroads and we go, oh man, how am I supposed to be God's person in this world? How am I supposed to be God's person in this circumstance? How am I supposed to be God's person in this, this culture? How in today's world can I be God's person? Well, these markers, if we aim toward them, we know we're on the right path. But also, friends, we can confirm that we're on the right path when we see them in our lives. Does that make sense? There's something we're, we're aiming for, but also... As we see them in our lives and as they, they're, they're producing fruit in our lives, we're like, oh, I must be on the right path because these things are becoming true of me. And so that's how we're, we're, uh, we're going to be looking at these ideas called markers. And we've been really coy about them. We haven't mentioned what they are, mostly because we don't want you to pick and choose and not come to church on the hard ones. So uh, we didn't, we, you know, I know, somebody just said, wow, really? Yeah. Uh, here's how you can go find them if you want to go Wikipedia them. We're actually going to, the markers that we're going to use, we're going to use uh, the seven virtues that are in classic theology, the seven virtues. Now, you may be super familiar with the seven deadly sins, right? Whether that was the book or the movie or the concept. But the seven virtues are what the church fathers in the fourth century actually developed in response to what were the seven deadly sins. To say, if these markers are in your life, then you're going to be able to uh, avoid the temptations that bring about the destruction of life. That, the seven deadly sins were about how we were made to live. And if we uh, varied from that path, there would be destruction. And so the church fathers said, that's true. But also, let's put it in a positive. There are these seven virtues or these um, seven um, markers, as we're going to call them. And this part of this ancient path that there are these virtues. But I want to give you a quick warning as you have, look, just with that, that thing still up there, that definition. This is not that we're not going to be preaching morality per se. This isn't about, hey, put this virtue in your life. We want you to develop this virtue. And here's why. The reason we're not going to really be looking at it that way is that, that these are not morality per se, but they're the recognized, well-worn path toward godliness, toward Christ-following-leaningness. It's about following Jesus is what we're talking about here. And so these markers are not going to be about, wow, you should have this morality in your life. These markers are about this path.
being on the path, if these markers are there, then, then you know you're on the path toward following Christ, toward godliness. And this is why we're not gonna preach on the vices. We're not gonna preach on the negative side of it. We're not preaching on the seven deadly sins because seven weeks of, hey, stop that behavior or seven weeks of stop that attitude is really of limited value, isn't it? Because if you can correct a value or you can correct a behavior or you can change it, at least when the pastor's looking, we haven't really gotten anywhere in terms of being fully devoted, lifelong followers of Jesus on the path. The illustration for me is a little bit like disciplining your children. If you uh, remember this from being a kid or if you have kids, you know this, that, that um, the greatest compliment you can get as a parent is when you hear from somebody that your kid lived out some value of your family out there over at their house. Have you heard that, right? You get that word, you're like, oh, we had, you know, a little Stevie for dinner and he offered to do the dishes and you're like, my, my Stevie, right? My kid? Because what happens is, is we can force that kid in our home to exhibit the correct behaviors, but we don't really know whether or not anything's taken root, do we? But then all of a sudden we hear that they're making these choices outside and we're like, oh, they actually have had something happen within them out there. And so this is the way it is with following Christ. These markers could be virtues that you pursue and you correct some of the outward behavior and yet it doesn't get us anywhere toward becoming fully devoted, lifelong followers of Jesus. That's the idea that we're Christ ones, we're his people on the path. And so these are going to be the seven virtues that we're going to talk about. Uh, you'll go look them up if you want to see what's coming. And I, we actually uh, mixed up the, the, uh, the order a little bit just to throw you off too. That's not why we did it. But, um, but here's my title today, and here's the, mark, the first marker. It's the first marker in the list of the church fathers, and it's chastity. What in the world is chastity? And you're like, really? That's the one that you're starting with? That's, here we go again. Christians hate sex. Christians are harping on sex. Christians are totally against sex. I just, I don't know. I don't want to speak for all Christendom. We like sex just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> Have you been in the nursery downstairs? We like what God created. We love sex. We love it so much. Listen, church, that we as his people on the path are going to be pursuing it in its sweetest, purest, best form. Can I get an amen? Right? Chastity is the first marker because we're going to pursue purity in all things, including the richness and the purity of God's vision for sex. So sexual purity is a better term. I wanted to use the old term because I just think it's really funny to say chastity. But sexual purity is what we're about. It's the sexual expression when and how and where it was designed to be expressed when and how it's appropriate for my season in life. And that's that definition that you see there on the screen. Chastity is the pursuit of sexual purity in every way, in every circumstance, in every season of life. You see the positive movement in it? Chastity is the pursuit of sexual purity. It's in every way, in every way. Not just, for example, in our deeds, but also in our thoughts. We're gonna to get to Jesus' teaching about that, right? It's sexual purity in every way, 
It's in every circumstance because there are lots of circumstances where we don't think necessarily are a sexual purity circumstance for us, but it's something that we're going to pursue in every circumstance. It's about the conversation at the water cooler. It's about the conference at Vegas. It's, a, it's, a, it's about uh, uh, the, the Christmas party and it's about the, 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 the sort of uh, the way we use the web. It is about the um, uh, innocuous, uh, seemingly innocuous flirting that we do with members of the opposite sex. It's in every circumstance. Sexual, pursuing sexual purity in every way, in every circumstance, and in every season of one's life, in every season. When we're married, there's a certain... There's certain appropriate sexual um, uh, purity. If we're single, of course, if we're divorced, if we're just starting with God, if we're living in, in, in some sort of a failure situation, this is what it is. Very positive. The opposite, of course, the seven deadly sin is lust. That's the name of it. And lust is the unrestrained sexual indulgence based on physical passion. And that wasn't something Christians made up. That was something that from the days of Plato and Aristotle, and I mean, this is 350 years before Christ, they said, listen, anybody who just lives out of whatever it is that they're feeling in the moment is an idiot. I just summed up all of ancient wisdom right there. I mean, and everyone would agree that that's ridiculous. And so that's not what we're saying. That's sexual indulgence regardless of the season, regardless of the circumstances. That's the negative side of it. That's lust. But this is very positive. The, in, in the Catholic doctrine, they call charity, I mean, chastity this. They call it a successful integration of sexuality within the whole person. Is that beautiful? A successful integration of sexuality within the whole person. So it is a virtue, they go on to say, that allows us to do what is right and good and truly loving in all relationships. I love that. It's super positive. So we're integrated in the whole person. Now, when I get to that place, that, that chastity is a pursuit of sexual purity in every way, in every circumstance, in every season of one life, one's life, I'm already well aware that I'm tempted to want to start talking about examples. And then I'm tempted to know that maybe some of you are wondering if I'm disclosing some private conversations that you've had with me. Honestly, I... I don't know how to drill down on this with some specifics. And so we're going to probably talk less specifics and talk more generally about purity and about sexual purity and let the Holy Spirit do some of his work. But I'm aware of a couple of things. One is that as soon as I start naming examples, the religious spirit rises up in front of us and we go like this. I don't do that, so I'm okay. Or I only do that about halfway, so I'm okay. And I don't want to get in the battle of tug and war of trying to convince you whether you're sexually pure or not pure. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that. I'm also well aware in this room that many of us are so burdened by our shame in this very moment that you're angry that I did not tell you this was the topic this week. To some degree, that is every person in this room. Our sexuality is so broken. If you do not admit that about yourself, it's, it's at a supreme denial. And so I realize as we go forward and we talk about this, this idea of, of sexual purity this morning, that many of us met just beginning with the emotion of shame. And so I just want to stop and pray and invite the Holy Spirit and his grace to meet us. Can we do that?
chastity, as the pursuit of, of sexual purity in every way, in every circumstance, in every season of life, God, and I pause to acknowledge that we are all broken and in need of your grace and need to hear from you today because that does not describe us. And so speak, God. Speak to us first and foremost that shame is a tool of the devil to keep us in defeat and to get us to not hold our heads up high that our God is a generous and merciful and forgiving and empowering and healing God. And we cry out to you, God, to meet us and remove shame from our lives. We even confess to you right now our brokenness. We confess to you, God, the ways in which we were not sexually pure today, yesterday, this week. Even some of us made resolutions about it in 2017 and have gotten overwhelmed by the more, how we've had more failure than we have had success and victory. And so we come to you dependent on your mercy and we bow before you, God, in gratefulness for your forgiveness. And we ask you to teach us, clear our minds, free us from the enemy's attacks, even in this moment, and teach us in the name of Christ. Amen. So let me do just some foundational, let's do, look at Jesus's foundational teaching as we sort of go to the what is this sexual purity thing, and then we'll go to another New Testament passage and talk about how to end our time together. The first text I want to show you is Matthew 5. It's right out of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus. He's talking specifically about adultery, but he says this, you've heard that it was said. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And by the way, where do you think they had heard that it was said that? Does anybody know where they had heard that from? from the Ten Commandments, from the Old Testament. Yeah, they'd heard it was said that. that. They were like, uh, yeah, we've heard that a few times. It's number seven on the top 10 list. It was like, do not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And this is where Jesus blows everybody away. By the way, Jesus doesn't make obeying the law any easier. Jesus doesn't make the, the moral and the spiritual laws any easier. He actually makes it more difficult. And so with all the love and the grace of Jesus, just know that he makes the standard actually higher uh, which is so incredible. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, excuse the exclusive language. Jesus was talking to a group of men because the women at that time were probably home, whatever the women were doing, tending the, the home, but were not in the, engaged in the, the rabbinic, you know, philosophical and theological conversation. So excuse the language, but of course it's inclusive language that anyone who looks at another man or woman lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart. They heard this because it was, it was one of the commandments. This is adultery specifically. We're going to talk generally about sexual immorality. The next passage uses that term sexual immorality, and it includes everything that is inappropriately done based on the circumstance and the station in life and the teaching of Christ. So it's, 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 all, the, it's all the sexual sins and the grayness therein that we find ourselves, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this was specifically adultery. And that's a man having a sexual experience with anyone other than his wife. That's a woman having a sexual experience with anyone other than her husband. That's what adultery means specifically. And Jesus is talking about it, but I want you to I bring you to this text because I want you to notice something about it. Jesus is very concerned with a heart. Go back to the Matthew text. Jesus is very concerned about the heart. Anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If any of you were young Christians like I was, and I became a Christian, I was 13 and I'm reading along and I'm like, okay, I want to be Christ's follower. And then I'm like, wait, anything, anytime I look at it, like 
just looking at a woman, like, like, okay, that one, like red line through that one, like I failed, like, oh my gosh, I'm hopeless. There's no possible way to do this. Jesus made it a very difficult thing. The teaching about it is he's making heart, he's having us look at the heart. This is a heart conversation. And if you look at the next text, that you can move there now, that Mark 7, Jesus was in a conversation with the Pharisees about obeying the law, and later he would talk to his disciples specifically, and it was explained to them what he was talking about, but this is what he said. He went on, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Remember the Pharisees were thinking in their religion, hey, don't eat unclean food, and they were arguing about it. Jesus goes, oh, listen, let me tell you about religious stuff. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual morality, that's the gen that general term. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside a person. He was talking about the fact that he's very concerned about the heart. Sexual purity, friends, is gonna start with what's happening in the heart. It isn't about whether or not we've figured out the right websites we can look at, the right R-rated movies we can see, the right way that we can look at a woman and not look at a woman. You'll never figure that religion out. You will never work out all the details. I know guys who are like, friends, I could lust after a woman in a burqa. Like, I'm out of control. Like I, you do, it's, I, there's no, like if I try to figure out how to solve the religion of this, I'll never succeed. It's about a heart thing. And this is what Jesus said. He went on in this passage in Mark to later then say to them, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They're, they're just trying to put together a religion to say, okay, look, I'm checking the boxes and I'm doing all the right things, but they're not dealing with the heart. Sexual purity is a heart thing, and that's what Jesus' foundational teaching is about. It's very related to what he said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 8 says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See, it's not enough to sort of clean up the outside or clean up the outside a little or try to stop some behaviors. Jesus didn't come to sort of stifle our bad behaviors or clean us up a little bit. He came, listen church, he came to transform us and our hearts. He came to change us. So any teaching, and oh, and look at the result of it, that we would see God. Because the sin that's in our hearts, the brokenness, our sexual brokenness that's in our hearts keeps us from seeing and hearing God, i.e. keeps us off the path. We don't know which way to go. We don't know how to be God's people. And so the teaching about sexual purity is to say, listen, let's make this a heart thing. Let's let Jesus come and heal our hearts, come and transform our hearts, come and fill our hearts, come and change our hearts so that we can stay on the path and see God. Purity is a heart thing. It isn't a religious thing. And so it's about heart. So sexual purity is about God saying, pursue this, not in a sort of a puritanical legalism but at a heart level, and then you're going to see God. Remember the text from last week? If you find the path and walk in it, you're going to find rest for your souls. That's why the psalmist said, create, create in me, anybody remember? A clean heart, oh God. So with that foundational understanding sort of Jesus' teaching about heart and purity, I want to look at a passage in the New Testament together in 1 Thessalonians 4, because New Testament then sort of has this, so how do we live this stuff out, right? 
So here's a really good passage uh, that I, I mean, it's, it's going to sound kind of religious to you. If I read it in the King James, we would just all be laughing and giggling because it would just sound so like what we think the Bible stereotypically probably sounds like, you know, Christians, thou should stop having any fun and, you know, whatever. But it isn't. It's beautiful and it's deep and it's kind of scary. First Thessalonians 4, and I wouldn't mind if you had your Bibles open to it as well. We're going to have it on the screen to help you, but I'll read through it all the way. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you were living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, if anyone who rejects this instruction does not re- therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives His Holy Spirit. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. And it's our first marker. It's our first marker. Sexual purity is our first marker. Avoiding sexual immorality is our first marker. And here's what it means. It means that if we aim, remember I talked about aiming? If we aim at sexual purity, we're gonna stay on the path of following Jesus. And remember what I said about confirming? That if we are seeing growth in our sexual purity, we'll know we're on the right path. And so by argument, if we're not growing in our sexual purity, By argument, if we're not aiming at sexual purity, we're not on the path of following Christ. This is why it's the first marker. It's the first marker because the ancients saw, not that sex is bad, the ancients saw that it is the perfect analogy to whether or not we would die to ourselves and our flesh, meaning my will, my control, my world, my lordship of my life, right? It's the perfect metaphor of whether I would die to myself and submit to the lordship of Jesus. Remember I told you last week, this is going to be a Lordship of Jesus series. And so it's the first marker. Chastity is the first marker because it's the perfect analogy of how we have longings that we're like, hmm, do I just want what I want or do I want to follow Christ for what he wants? Four, very, and it's really five, and then like I'll add like six and seven at the end. Very quick things about sort of how we pursue this then as Christ followers. How do we pursue, aim toward this marker of sexual purity? One, and it's right from this text. Live to please God, not yourself. Live to please God, not yourself. If you look at verse one, he starts it by saying, we instructed you how to live. In fact, Karen, if you, when I do that, would you go back and forth to the text, but then you can come back to the point because I want them to be able to see that and not forget what we're talking about. Thank you. As we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. This is about pleasing God. This is what it's about. This is why it's a hard thing, friends, because if our desire is not there to please God, then our heart will never be engaged and we will never be in place to battle this sexual purity battle. If our heart is not in this deal, we're done. We absolutely, if, if we want to, this is the thing as Christians that our heart is engaged to want to please God. Christians at their best, Christians are, they, 
They don't want any religion, and that is exactly right. We don't want religion, but we want worship, and we want love, and we want pleasing God, and we want to find him as the tr- our treasure. This is our heart that's engaged, and I want to please God. You know the difference, don't you? If you face some temptation, you face something in your life, whether it's sexual purity or not, you know the difference about whether you're like, you know what, I, I need to see some change. I want to see some change. I want to do something different. I want change in my life because I want to please God with it. In my line of work, the difference between people who want to sort of see some change but do not want to please God and the people who are like, want, it's night and day, the people who want to please God. And I see it in my own life. I'm like, when my heart's not engaged, I'm like, I got some, I got some strength within my character, maybe even above average, where I can pursue some goals for a while. But when my heart gets engaged, done. I'm in. This is about pleasing God. And friends, I'm not saying that if you're failing, you don't want to please God. I'm saying you're not in touch with that motivating factor. We're going to live as if we please, to please God, not ourselves. That changes for some people. That changes their whole heart on this thing. And they're like, right, what am I doing? I want to be about what God wants. What pleases you, God? What do I do? And so I'm going to say, if you're not engaged toward sexual purity because you want to please God in that area, then get your heart in touch with who he is and what he has done for you and how he wants you to live. It's a motivating factor. We're there to please God and not ourselves. And the not ourselves part, you can see that in verse 5 of the passage. Verse 4 has gone on to say, you should control your uh, own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And then that phrase, remember, not in passionate lust like the pagans. That's so funny. Not in passionate lust like the pagans. Well, who were pagans? Pagans were people that were non-religious people. It was a technical term. They're people who were not Jew, they, Jewish people. They, were, they don't know God. And so this idea is please ourselves, I mean, please God and not ourselves because the pagans, people without God, they just live however they want to live. They don't have a standard. They don't necessarily have to do that. They make the best choices they can. They put their own moral code into place. Friends, we know God. Our our motivation is to please God. Remember, sexual purity is successful integration of sexuality in every relationship. And that sometimes means we're going to control ourselves, even if it feels like we want to do something different. I'm here to remind you that something you know very well is true. Self-denial is a thing. Do you need that reminder? It's a thing. Self-denial is a thing because we're Christ's servants. And so those who don't know God do the best they can and do what they feel like doing. That is not we're Christ's ones. And so sometimes we die to ourselves and what we feel like doing because sexual purity is about sexual integration in every way. But that's a hard thing. They do it because they don't know God, but you do it because you do and you please him. Learn to live to please God and not yourself. That's about us deciding my heart's for him. And if your heart is not for him, if you're like, I never care about pleasing God, if I'm honest, then friends put in the same effort at getting to know who this magnificent, precious treasure is as you do anything else in your life. I know men that if they spent half the time pursuing a knowledge of God through his word than they do trying to figure out how to surf porn without anybody catching them, they would be miles ahead in their spiritual journey. And their hearts get engaged and we want to please him. Two, 
Live by the power that comes from doing his will. Live by the power that comes from doing his will. In verse three, it says, this is God's will. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And it goes on, you see it in verse seven. It says, this is our calling. Our calling is to be impure. I mean, not to be impure. I knew there was gonna come once or twice that was gonna be the case. And so somebody's gonna edit that and put it on YouTube. Our calling is not to be, we've got to not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So my point is that we're going to live by the power that comes from doing his will. My point is that his will and his calling is to be holy. Here's the logic, friends. If it is God's will and God's desire for you and God's call on your life to avoid sexual immorality and to be holy, if it is God's plan, God will give you what you need to do it. This is a positive message that you have to hear from me. Sexual purity is possible, church. It is possible because this is God's will that you would be sanctified and avoid it. It is God's call on your life to be pure and to not be impure. And if this is God's call, then he will give you what you need to be able to do it. Here's a verse I want to read you, and it may be the money shot for you. This may be all that you need to hear today. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it's Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church, and he says this, verse 10 13. It's not on the screen because I wanted you to hear it from God's word and listen. No temptation has seized you except what is common to all people. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Did you know this is in the scriptures? And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up underneath it. You claim that promise, people of God. No temptation sees you except what is common to all people. And yet, if this is God's will that you remain holy, then he will provide you a way out of it. And when you are tempted, he'll give you the strength to stand up underneath it. Sexual purity is possible for God's people. My point, live by the power that comes from doing his will. You do his will, he comes through and gives you the strength and the power to do that will. And it's the cycle of living in obedience for him. And that's the meaning of verse eight in this, the, the text as well. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Remember, the instruction is live in sexual purity. And he goes, and if you don't do this, if you're not living in sexual purity, you're not just ignoring some pastor's advice. You're rejecting what God is trying to offer you, which is what? His Holy Spirit. That's right. You can say those out loud. When I say that, that's not rhetorical. I want you to see if you know the answer. Otherwise, I'll keep preaching. I got all day. Seriously, I'm fine. It's my job. I am paid for the full day. So if we don't do it, we're not rejecting somebody's advice. We're rejecting the Holy Spirit who empowers believers to do God's will. So live by the power that comes from doing his will. Okay, lightning round. We're going to finish these up. Three, live to love others. You see the beginning of verse six in the text, live to love others. He says, and that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Friends, sexual impurity always harms other people. This is a lie from the pit of hell that it's not affecting anybody but you. 
even the sexual purity in your brain, even the lust of your mind, even the the thoughts that you have, the the things that you look at and nobody else is involved, it is always gonna be harmful to other people. In God's economy, what it does to you and what it does to your soul will have an impact through you to the world. Of course, it's obvious that if you have adultery with somebody, if you have an affair with somebody, that that's going to impact them. If you're not married and you have a sexual relationship with somebody, you are dragging them into an inappropriate circumstance. Of course, that would hurt those people. But even the stuff that you think doesn't affect anybody but you, friends, it affects people. Even if you get to the place where you should be loving the world, even you should be praying with that girl's grandmama. You should be weeping with that girl's father that she's stuck in the pornographic industry. You should be weeping and loving that family and the brokenness that's caused that. Do you hear me? You cannot use a virtual or real person and not harm them. That is contrary to the gospel of love. If you don't want to believe any of other Jesus' teaching or any of Paul's stuff about sexual immorality, we all know that love is the right thing to do. And it is not a victimless crime for you even to lust in your brain because you with your clear conscience will one day walk your daughter down the aisle and give her to a man who you expect would have high standards in his marriage to her. You will look the little boys in our church in the eye and say, pursue Christ and you will have a spiritual impact if you're living a holy life and it will be more than if you are not living a holy life, friends. It matters. That sounded like a, fire and brimstone preacher. (laughs) Live to love other people. And so if we're we're just living under the self-deceit that, you know what, my thought life, I'm including me, my thought life, my stuff, nobody knows. Let's at least be motivated that we want to love our spouse and our kids and the strangers in our world. Let's be motivated to do the right thing by them, even if we're not going to do it by ourselves or God. Okay? Right? That's a challenge to all of us. Live to love others. Four. Live with healthy fear. You hear that in some of what I just preached, right? Verse, um, second half of verse six, the Lord's gonna punish people who commit those sins. He said, I've warned you before, the punishment of God comes. Friends, this is not fire and brimstone. If you've received Christ, the punishment isn't, oh man, God's gonna send me to hell. God, this is about God thwarting your efforts to find life and satisfaction in the ways that you're looking if they're not towards sexual purity. He'll not give you the blessings that you're looking for. That's his punishment. He will withhold from you his best because you're looking for life in the wrong places. That's what God does. And Paul's saying, listen, I want you to have life at its fullest. And if you continue living this way, uh, God's going to stand in your way of trying to find life. And some of us are stuck in our spiritual journeys. We're stuck in, 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 in the way we want our marriage to go and where our parenting to go and our career to go and how we're finding out. Some of us are stuck. And I, I wonder sometimes if it isn't because God is just standing in the way saying, wake up. There's a barrier in your life. Remember what it says that if the pure in heart will see God. And if we're not seeing God and we're not seeing his blessings, it could be because we're under the judgment of not submitting our sexual lives and other sin to him. So this is the sum. This is my fifth point. It's the sum of the whole thing. Live this life. Live this way more and more. This is the encouragement, friends. This is the good news that's there. Live this life more and more. If you look at verse 
for one again, he says, as for other manners, matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. In other words, he had a really hard word for people who were already doing it somewhat. The point is, it's a more and more message. Live this way more and more. This is not, you guys, an all or nothing kind of a message. This is not this message that says, you, you have to be there right now. It's as in fact you're doing, nobody is perfect in this, but he's saying, keep going. We have a, an apostle and the word of God, and we have a God himself who says to us, keep going. It's incremental. We serve such a gracious and generous God, listen, who is pleased by our small victories, even if they're few. And they aren't overwhelmed by the many failures potentially in our lives. And I'm telling you this because this is what happens when we talk about sexual purity is that people go, okay, yeah, I should be different. But remember, it's a hard thing and it's a transformation thing. And so we sort of aim for that marker and we set out on the path of sexual purity and we have a couple of steps. And by Tuesday, we've had a couple of failures. And by Friday, we're like, it's done. I'm not that guy. And we do an all or nothing thing. We either expect perfection in our, in our purity, which nobody has achieved, or we bail all the way and go, I'm never going to see any difference. It's an incremental thing. Oh, thank God that we have an incremental God who, who is so delighted in the small victories that we have and who keeps meeting us in grace, even in our failure. Do you hear that? So I want to say, we're in covenant, like to the church in Thessalonica. It's God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. This is God's will that you should be sanctified. Keep going as in fact you're doing it and do not give up even if the victories are small and the defeats are overwhelming. This is a marker. If we aim for it, we know that we will be Christ followers and we'll see God in our lives. And if we're growing in our lives, we know we're on the right path. Why don't you stand? Let me give you this blessing as I close. Here's the blessing and the challenge. Uh, on behalf of all of us, let me cry out, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Friends, go from here knowing that it is never too late to turn away from our longing to do what it is that we please to do. It's never too late to receive God's grace and forgiveness and mercy in the area of our sexual sin. And that God is delighted when we move more and more toward living out his will in that way. And so go here not in shame. Go here full of mercy, longing to follow God fully devoted, lifelong followers, sexually pure, but go in his mercy and his grace more and more.